Today's reading is from Philippians 4, 10 through 13. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have, rece- you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, Trey. Good morning, Redemption Church. My name's Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new here, welcome. We're glad you're here with us this morning. Also, if you're new here, you should know I'm not the guy who's usually up here. That would be Pastor Frank. He is not on vacation. He wanted to make sure that was clear. He is working, okay? He's at a uh, camp that he goes to every year. This is, in fact, he said the, I have it written down, the 23rd summer in a row that he's been doing this. And so um, we're uh, praying for him as he's up there, and he'll be back with us shortly. Now, as one of your pastors, I want to start by just saying thank you. Uh, I have the privilege of bringing my dad here to this church, and he's not a Christian. He was here just a couple weeks ago. We came in, we sat right over there, and overall, his impression of you guys was that you were a church that was genuine, that you were a church that was loving, um, and that you sincerely were worshiping and welcoming him. And so it's a privilege to be a pastor at a church where that's the reputation, where you guys are known as being a church that's sincere and worshiping. And so thank you for blessing my family with that. So I've had the pleasure of studying our text for today for the last month and chewing on it and and meditating on it over and over. And it is a beautiful text. This book is beautiful. And sadly, we're going to be closing out our series on Philippians today. It's been a short and sweet book, just four chapters. We've been going through for eight weeks, and this is the ninth week. I feel like we could spend another eight weeks mining its depths. And so after Philippians, we've got two open weeks, then we're beginning a new series through the book of Exodus. So we're really looking forward to that. We're going to be spending, however, just 15 weeks in the book of Exodus, which if you know that book, it's a big book. That's a lot to get through in 15 weeks. But one of the cool things is we get to go through that book really quickly. And what that does is it gets you a really cool overview of the redemptive story in that book. Exodus has been described as the gospel of the Old Testament. So it's a really cool book that we get to study, and we're excited. So I'd encourage you, if you want, at home, start reading through Exodus. Start wrestling through it. The more you can come prepared and ready on August 18th to start that book, the more you'll get out of it. And so let's start by taking a look back at some of the major themes and major takeaways from Philippians to help us remember where we've been. Because as I think you'll see, Paul, in our verses today, he's going to share a secret with us. And he's going to share this secret, and this secret is going to unlock all of the major themes of this book so far. And so what were some of those major themes? Well, like I said, we spent the last eight weeks going through this, and we know that Paul is writing this book from prison, right, to the Philippians, to the church he started in Philippi in response to the sacrificial gift that they sent him. That's why he's writing the letter. To this ragtag community 
of Jesus followers, people that are struggling. And so overall, one of the themes we see here is this sweet, um, generous, and loving relationship between this pastor and his church. And our text uncovers that even more to a church that's experiencing suffering, to a church that feels alone. They're struggling because they want their guy back. They want Paul back. They miss him. And he misses them. And he wants them to know, Paul wants them to know, you've been on my mind. You're not alone. I know you're suffering, but you're not alone. And so he tries to show them, one of the other major themes is, He's trying to encourage them toward this end. He wants them to know that they're not alone. He wants to show them a few key areas on what it means to be a faithful community to Jesus, which is what we want too, right? He wants them to be a community that sees all of life as a reenactment of and an invitation into the life of Jesus. To be a community that rejoices in the Lord always, and in all things, a community that is united together in Christ, humbling ourselves like Jesus, right? If he can humble himself to unify us to him and to one another, can we not do the same? And to be a community, and this is another one of those major themes in here, a community that suffers well, enduring hardships like Jesus did. It's also a really, it's been a really interesting book because it's got a lot of these um, one-liners, these like cultural statements that are pretty well known, some more than others. And if you grew up in the church, you might have heard these a little bit more than the rest or someone who didn't. But chapter one, verse six, he who began a good work will be faithful to what? Complete it, right? You guys know this. Chapter one, verse 21, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Chapter 4, verse 7, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Maybe the most well-known, chapter 3, verse 2, look out for the evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. No, that, that was just me then, that was just me. Uh, and then you've heard it in our scripture reading today, chapter 4, verse 13, I can do what? All things through Christ who strengthens me which is a great verse to pull out from here and use it anywhere. Make it say whatever you want it to say, right? Put it on a pillow on your couch, tattoo it, Phil 413, I can do all things, right? You know, when I heard I was teaching this verse, my mind went right to a sports analogy, which if you know me, that's not really my thing. So if you're sitting there and you're going, geez, another sports analogy, really? This guy too? Um, I'm actually with you on that, but just bear with me. This is a good one, okay. The 2013 Super Bowl playoffs, right? You might remember this game. It was the Ravens versus the Broncos. Okay, it, it really was an amazing game. They went into double overtime, ended with this huge interception, this big field goal. After the win, the Ravens won. And after the win, the cameras rush down onto the field, right? Zoom in on this one guy, and he's screaming through tears. He's screaming, I can do all things. He's like flexing, like, it looked a little more intimidating than, but he's screaming, I can do all things, right? And now it seems like, I'm assuming, but it seems like what he's saying is, I won this game right now through Christ who strengthens me, which if that is what he's saying, that's 
That's not even like even close to what this verse is trying to get at. You can take just about any sport and you'll get to this verse eventually. People shared stories in the preaching collective about wrestling and, and all these sports where eventually Philippians 4.13 comes up. And we don't even have to try very hard to expose how wrong that thinking is. Okay, so even on his face, what if the other team has that written on their shoes too? Okay, so you're both saying, I can do all things. So one of you's wrong. One of you, Christ didn't give enough strength to or something, right? It doesn't work. It falls apart quickly. No, we have to go back to verses 10 through 12 to understand where 13 is going. So let's start. Let's read verse 10. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Pause there. Let's remember, why is Paul rejoicing? And by the way, here's that word rejoice again. And this would be the 15th or 16th time we've heard that word rejoice or rejoicing. This is a major theme of this book is this rejoicing thing. And Paul's rejoicing the Lord greatly because, like it says, they were finally able to send him this gift. And at first blush, the first time you read this, maybe it came across a little sarcastic to you, almost like passive-aggressive. Did anyone else pick up on that? Well, obviously, Paul's not being passive-aggressive here. He's not saying, I'm so glad you were finally able to bother yourselves enough to send me something and care for me. Right? That's not what he's saying. We know that. He's saying, in fact, I know you care about me. I know that you've wanted to take care of me, and now you've finally had the chance to do it. And we've, most people think, the commentators think, that it probably just took a while for this church, who didn't have a lot of means and resources, to scrape together something to send him. It probably just took him a little while. And I loved with this, I loved imagining what Paul's reaction would have been. So think about it. Paul knows this church, right? He knows they would have struggled to get this, right? So Epaphroditus brings this to him, and he receives it and goes, oh, guys, this is too much. This is too much. And we know it must have been something substantial to justify sending one of their own to, to send it and personally deliver it to Paul. But the fact that this church scraped together this care package just to send him, and we can guess a little bit what might have been in there. This is kind of fun. If you look at 2 Corinthians 4.13, it gives us a clue into what Paul might have wanted. Paul writes this to Timothy, When you come, bring the cloak that I left with carpets at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Paul is a writer. Give the man some paper and a pen, and he's happy. Maybe some clean clothes would help. Maybe some, you know, some snacks, a little trail mix maybe, but... But maybe, it's kind of fun, maybe he's using that paper and pen to write this letter back to them. It's kind of fun to think about. So that's why he's rejoicing, because they were able to show their concern for him. He carries on in verse 11, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Pause there again. That was a huge statement. Did you guys see that? First, do you see his love and care and this relationship peeking through these verses. When he's saying, not that I'm speaking of being in need, I think he wants them to know, guys, I'm actually okay. Don't worry so much about me. Yes, I'm in prison, but all my needs are taken care of because God's got me. But it's probably safe to assume here that Paul did 
in fact have needs, right? He's probably hungry, dirty, isolated, restrained. So, okay, so not all of his needs are being fulfilled. And yet, how can he say he's, he's content? Paul is lacking of what many of us would consider very basic needs. Often we think our wants are our needs. We confuse the two, I need this, I need that, and when we get it, what we're left with instead of contentment is sort of this temporary satisfaction in the thing itself, but really it's this lingering disappointment and discontent, right, leading to more discontentment. Does it sound like I'm speaking from experience here? Because I am. So we're stuck in this cycle of the next thing and the next thing, blind to the fact that the pursuit of those things is actually leading us towards nothing less than destruction. There's this quote, many of you guys might have heard this, but Rockefeller, right, was at one point the the world's richest man, the first ever American billionaire. A reporter asked him, okay, so how how much is enough? How much money is enough? He responded, just a little bit more. An article from The Atlantic about wealth and satisfaction says, say you wanted to have a mega yacht, plus six mansions, six different locations around the world. You could probably do all that fairly comfortable with a few hundred million dollars, which is a ton, by the way. There's, and then he says it's different if the goal is to keep accumulating, in which case, he says this, there's no number in which you could have enough. He says every billionaire I've spoken to, and I've spoken to quite a number of them, is extremely excited by each additional increment of the money they make. So this cycle feeds into itself and turns from want of the thing or the situation. And in this case, and for money, it accumulates to just wanting more, just more. It's not even about the money anymore. It's just more. Read about King Solomon in your Bible and see where having everything leads you. Ecclesiastes 5.3, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. And how many celebrities and athletes and people who who reach the top of success, the pinnacle of everything we say we're valuing and we strive after, who get to the top and they go, this isn't it. There's got to be more than this. How many people do we need to hear from before we see the error and catch it earlier in that kind of thinking? Its end is our own destruction. Verse 12, Paul continues, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So being content, like Paul is saying, is a secret, meaning it's not been obvious or easy for him to find out. It's less of a spiritual gift and more of a learned skill. That's contentment. I think he's tapping into a rhetorical device here, too, with this secret thing. It's like if I talk to Roland, my son, okay, and Eleanor, my daughter, comes up and says, well, what are you guys talking about? What are you guys talking about? And I say, oh, it's a, it's a secret. It's a secret. Well, now she has to know. Like she wanted to know before, but now she, she's got to know. Or you overhear someone at work whispering, right, and your ears kind of perk up. Oh, I wonder what they're talking about. I think the church in Philippi would have perked their ears up at hearing this, this, to learn this secret recipe for contentment. Interesting, though, there's no explicit command 
here. Paul doesn't say, so be content. Right? But he doesn't have to. It's just something we want. When we hear it described, Paul in prison is content. We're like, I, I want that. That sounds, that sounds nice. Not the prison part, but the, you know, the contentment part. So let's picture, what would this contentment look like or feel like for you? And this is less about the situation, more about the feeling. So in talking to a friend, he said, so I'm on the back porch, maybe a drink in hand, maybe kids are playing, it's nice out, sunset maybe, and that kind of inner peace, right? And the crazy thing is, Paul's saying he feels that inward peace in prison, in any and every circumstance. He feels that same level of peace. We want that. I want that. But we get lost. We, we're not sure how to get there. We think that this thing or this circumstance, this job, right, this position, this relationship, or, or even this piece of the relationship, if I could just have that, this status, this income, this church, if the church looked like this, then I'd be content here. They think, we think that'll finally bring us peace, but they don't. Over and over, they don't. So we shake it off, and we try something new, and we find our hearts more often in a state of frenzied want and discontent rather than this kind of peaceful contentment. Because life isn't always the backyard, sunset, kids playing thing. It's hard. Things happen. We experience suffering. Stuff goes wrong. We feel frustrated. Okay, so how? All right. So, okay, you got me wanting it. I want contentment. How? Tell me how to get there. So Paul gives us the first clue in this verse 13. Let's read it. So he's learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So do you see what that does to verse 13? That this actually has nothing to do with achievement, nothing to do with status or accomplishment. It's got nothing to do with that. It's not I can accomplish whatever I decide to accomplish through Christ who strengthens me. Sure, we'll tag that on. Now, I found it helpful here, and I got this from others, but I wrote it in my Bible. I crossed out do and wrote endure. I can endure all things through him who strengthens me. It's a little closer to what Paul's getting at here. So the funny thing is, based on how it's used in culture, this is actually the opposite of how it's used in culture. Right? It identifies more with the loss than the victory. It's I can endure the loss and the victories through Christ who gives me the strength to do it. And look at the reason Paul can say that, that he lists in verse 12. Backing up there again. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. Facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul's not pulling these examples out of thin air. You can look at 2 Corinthians 11 to the list of Paul experiencing the lows, being shipwrecked, being beaten, mocked, humiliated. Paul's experienced some lows, to say the least. Or you can look back in chapter 3 in Philippians and see his list of accolades of all these great things that he's done. So he's experienced the highs and the lows, and through those is how he's learned contentment. And so the question for us is, do I need to be shipwrecked? Do I need to experience a shipwreck in order to understand? Do I need to be beaten to the point of death even? No, I don't, I don't think that's what Paul's saying. This is attainable for us. He's writing it to the Philippians because this inner peace, this contentment 
is attainable for us too. This backyard kids playing thing, that feeling, that is attainable. And since we're in verse 12 here, I want to point out this thing here. It seems important when he says facing, right? I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Church, do you see? Do you see this? Paul is describing both as equally severe trials. Facing abundance and facing need, Paul describes them both as equally severe, something to be faced. Now, it's easy to view, it's easy to view being in need as a trial. We get that. Yeah, I don't have enough food to go around. That's a trial. That's hard. But we don't typically view having plenty as a trial, do we? I think Paul's saying we need to. Having abundance and need in church, broadly speaking, we're the abundance, right? Many of us won't experience suffering in the same level as, as Paul. But should we feel bad about the abundance? No, that's not what he's saying. Not necessarily, as long as we view it as Paul does, as a trial, as something to be faced. Not something in which we find our contentment. Yeah, I've got abundance, cool, I'm good. The poet, the poet and essayist Thomas Carlyle said this, for every hundred persons who can stand adversity, there is but one who can stand prosperity. That's a hard thing, and scripture is filled with warnings about this abundance. It's all too easy to find our satisfaction in that abundance. And we need to make sure we have a right view of God here because this secret thing, it's not a secret because God's withholding. It's not a secret because God's gone, well, I'm going to wait till you get to this level of maturity and then I'll kind of let you have this one. That's not, that's not a right view of God. God is not a withholding father, but a generous father. Like we sang this morning, a good father. A good father wouldn't withhold good things from his children. God's not that way. He gives freely. That's a right view of God. No, it's our sin that gets in the way of contentment. We take these good things, like Tim Keller says, we take these good things, and then we turn them into ultimate things, into things that we worship. And how backwards is that? We take this abundance as a gift from God, and we go, oh, I'm comfortable now. I'm, I'm finding my contentment in there. Church, have we learned the secret to being content in the abundance? to face that abundance, to be able to say with Paul, whatever comes my way, I can endure it all through Christ who strengthens me. And we need to talk about that strength part too because I think we can easily get that wrong. We misunderstand, I think, often the kind of strength Paul's talking about here. To our culture, strength is all outward, right? Physical appearance, outward success, dressing nice, whatever, power, influence, that's strength, right? But this isn't that kind of strength. No, we need the kind of strength that Jesus has. With, with the culture's view of strength, we would have looked at a guy like Jesus, like the religious leaders at the time did, and we would have seen weakness. We wouldn't have, we wouldn't have seen strength. We would, they wanted, the people at the time wanted a strong king, not this meek and kind and gentle Jesus. So learning contentment starts with a right view of God. And the kind of strength that he gives us. Otherwise, we miss the whole point. It's strength to endure, not strength to conquer. It's strength like a tree, 
not like a bulldozer. The author Haruki Murakama says this, the strength I'm looking for isn't the type where you win or lose. I'm not after a wall that'll repel power come from the outside. What I want is the kind of strength to be able to absorb that kind of power, to stand up to it, the strength to quietly endure things like unfairness, misfortunes, sadness, mistakes, misunderstandings. And church, who is the hero of this contentment? Who is the hero of this whole statement? The key to the secret is Christ. He is our source of strength. And we forget sometimes just the kind of inward strength that Jesus had. So think about it. The strength to endure being mocked, beaten, killed, and especially because he could have stopped it at any point. Think about the strength it took to endure those things, knowing, yeah, I could stop this at any point. That took strength. If we look a little closer at the phrasing in verse 12 of this, I've learned the secret, what we find also is you can think of it as, I've been taught the secret. And I like how that simple change makes it clear that it's not about what we do. It's not about I've learned this, but what we've been given. Not what we can achieve. Not I can do all things. No. I've been taught the secret of contentment. How to endure like Jesus did. Learned it from Jesus. Church, we need to follow his example. That's Paul's whole point here. That contentment comes through Christ's sufficiency. Not self-sufficiency. Through Christ's dependence, not self-dependence on our own strength. Church, are you following Christ in this? And how can you learn from Christ if you're not investing the time to get to know him in the Gospels, to reading your Bible and praying, seeking after this Jesus who is the source of the strength that you need to be content? We have to start with that right view of God. Paul continues in verse 14, and we'll read all the way through 17 here. He says, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. And 14 through 16, that gives us a nice a glimpse into the, the two-way nature of their relationship. Right? Paul loves and cares for the church, and the church cares for and loves Paul. Church, do you know that, at least within redemption, you are known as a generous church? And that's a beautiful thing. That when, our, when needs are expressed to you, you rally and you use this abundance to bless others. And if you're hearing this and, and you haven't joined in that, you don't, you don't know what I'm talking about or, what, or how that all works, um, this isn't a challenge. This isn't trying to make you feel bad. You get to celebrate too because you're part of this church. We are known as a generous church, and that's a good thing. Now, if you're hearing this and maybe, maybe the Holy Spirit's convicting you, maybe if you're sitting there and you do find your comfort and your, your contentment in your wealth and the things they buy, if you want to fight against that idol, be more generous. Give more generous to fight that. Not to receive more in return. That's not what this is about. But to kill that dangerous idol within you. You want to learn contentment in your abundance, in the prosperity? 
Give more generously. God is pleased with that. That's what Paul's describing in verse 17. That's the, the fruit, right? God is pleased with your sacrifice, and I'm pleased on your behalf. That's kingdom-level contentment. And do you see how this contentment has led Paul to then put, quote, all things, like it says in 13, all things in their proper place. This is the other piece to learning contentment. Remember, it starts with the right view of God and ends with, or the fruit of it is, putting all things in their proper place. Now, what is all things? Well, to Paul, being in prison, he's put that in its proper place. He's not destroyed or crushed or questioning God in that. He's still trusting God. He's still content, right? Well, for us, it can be wealth or lack of it, things that I've already listed, the church, the career, in any and every circumstance, not holding it too highly or too lowly, receiving as a gift from God without finding a contentment in that thing. Put it in its proper place. Let's read verse 18. Paul says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. He's bringing in these Old Testament references, these poetic reminders that these things don't take away our sins, they can't add to our value in God's eyes, but, but that doesn't mean God's not pleased with them. He wants them to know he's overflowing with thankfulness. Even this little care package in prison have given him, like he says, amply more than he needs. Do you ever notice that it's impossible to please a chronically discontented person? No matter what their situation is or what they have, it's not quite good enough, they're always wanting more. We will never be happy with what God's given us or where he's placed us if we're not learning to be content in him. Does anyone read the comic strip Calvin and Hobbes? It's a great, it's a great thing. It's a big deal in our family. My kids and I, we love it. We've got four or five collections of just thousands of these comics. And they're often really pro profound, but Calvin is about as sarcastic and ungrateful and discontent as you can possibly be. But every now and then, they'll put out one like this one up here. Hopefully it's behind me. Is it? Come on. It's adorable, right? Come on. Is that not a picture of contentment? Right? The rain is inconvenient. But now, because he's, of what he's doing, the rain's not inconvenient. The rain is actually a blessing now. Do you see that? He's content where he is, at least there. The next strip, he's probably complaining about something else. But like Paul, Paul is content here. He's not sitting in prison in the woe is me thing, but trusting in God. And church, I've been thinking a lot about contentment in the church lately, or even contentment with the church. And I'm still newer here. I've only been here three years. Um, and it's an issue, honestly, at every church I've been a part of. But I've been surprised to hear that it's an ongoing issue here too. And I think it's a problem that needs to be addressed. Church, you're never going to be content here at this church if you're not finding your contentment in Jesus first. This church is never going to have the right programs, the right songs, the right kind of people that are the right age or wealth or industry or race 
or speak about the things that you're thinking through and wrestling with in the moment is never going to be enough for you if Jesus isn't enough for you. And these things, if you're, if you're here and you're, you're like, yeah, I do kind of think those, some of those things, that's a symptom of a heart that's discontent. And Frank talks all the time about how imperfect the church is and will continue to be, and yes. But we're not excusing that. But what I see is a church that's striving toward faithfulness. I see a church that loves Jesus more than anything. But unfortunately, what I'm seeing too is that when people are upset or frustrated about something, some lack in the church, what we see is that they isolate and they withdraw, right? Then they make some decisions in that isolation, and then the leadership is, is informed about the decision, not the issue. We get an email explaining, okay, I've been struggling for years, and basically, I'm out. That's not right, church. That's not how a church family works. In humility, what we'd rather see is in humility, bringing it to your community group leader. Invite them into the process, into the struggle, or the staff in the church. Maybe it needs to be brought to a pastor. And I'll tell you now, if your first reaction is, well, I guess I'm just going to approach the elders and tell them everything I think we need to do, you're, you're missing me. You're, you're missing the point here. We need to make our decisions, especially about Scripture, especially about the church, in the full light of day, right? Within the context of communal wisdom, allowing in humility, and that's a big part, humility, allowing others to speak into this and help shape your understanding. If you came to this decision of, all right, I'm leaving in the dark, you're probably missing something. It's probably off. And it might be something that we need to hear. It might be something that the elders need to hear, or it might be something they're already thinking and praying through. But either way, do you see, church, how much we need to learn contentment in all areas of our lives? So we can rightly receive and perceive all things as from God. That's why Paul was even able to enjoy this gift from the Philippians. And do you know a discontented or frustrated Paul would have never been satisfied with the gift from them. He would have gotten that gift and gone, well, that's great, but I got a snack now, but I'm going to be hungry tomorrow. Hello, I'm still in prison. If you could do something about that, that'd be swell, right? But he's saying, actually, I care more about you Paul's saying, I care more about our relationship than what I get from you. He continues in verse 19 and 20. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the heart of the secret right here. He knows they have needs. He knows from prison he's unable to fulfill those needs, but he also knows they don't need him. They need to see Jesus for who he is, that he is able to provide them with everything they need. He wants them to know that not only has God provided everything he needs, but he will supply everything they need. Think about the faith it took Paul to say that. Church, God has supplied you and I with everything we need, and he will supply every need of yours. Not every want, unfortunately, not every whim, but every need. It doesn't promise the wants and the whims, but the needs. And so as we start to wrap things up, I'm going to share seven things, not six, not eight, but seven, because that's a good biblical number, right? 
of what godly contentment is. Godly contentment is practiced confidence in Christ. That he is who he says he is, that he will provide. We must know him, church. Press into knowing him at all costs. And the beautiful thing, he's available to you at all times. He's always available to you. That godly contentment is the secret sauce to joy, unity, and peace. There's a reason Paul ends his book with these words. That contentment is that secret sauce to joy and unity and peace. Godly contentment looks like thriving where you're planted. This idea of simple dependence on Jesus. And this isn't a lack of ambition. That's not what this is. It's not even an ignoring of wants, but a submitting of those wants to Christ. Right? I really want this thing, but Jesus, I want what you have for me more. Godly contentment exposes and fights against idol. Idols. Again, the idols of comfort and wealth, security. Again, the idea if you want to fight against idols of wealth, be more generous. Godly contentment leads to life, not destruction. It leads to that heart that's at rest, the peace of God, right, that surpasses all understanding. A heart that easily is quick to rejoice in God, quick to trust him. Godly contentment loves people and uses things, not the other way around. It doesn't use people and love things. That's backwards. It reorients our hearts, putting all things in their proper place. And lastly, as we'll see in these last two verses, that godly contentment pushes us to love our neighbor. It's, it allows him to get his mind off of himself and on to others. Godly contentment gets our mind off of ourselves and our wants and our needs and on to others. Look how Paul closes this book. Verse 21 through 23. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So those in Caesar's household, there were probably servants, workers, officials that may have been responsive to Paul sharing the good news of Christ to them. Now think about this. He's able to love these people, some of whom might be responsible for putting him in prison. He's able to love them and see past his circumstances to love his neighbor, caring more about their needs than his own for the glory of God and doing it joyfully. But this took practice, church. He didn't get here overnight. And now we know the secret, right? Now we can learn slowly joyfully in any and every circumstance that we find ourselves to endure all things because God is who he says he is and he's accomplished it all. Look at Hebrews 12 too. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. God, forgive us for finding our contentment in things and circumstances 
thinking that that's what brings us peace when really what we need, God, is to remember you. So God, give us the strength to endure, to face abundance and face need and to do it all without without being rocked to our very core, questioning who you are, but instead treating it as, God, we remember and we know you're still in control. You're still good. So God, show us what it means more and more to live out godly contentment in all situations. In Jesus' name, amen.